Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be to have the honor to uh, speak on Family Day because uh, I do think there's some pretty significant relevance that we'll get to eventually. Uh, but my name is Kyle. Uh, glad to be a part of here. I'm part of the the preaching team. And if you've been here for a couple weeks, the last two weeks, you would know that we started a uh, sermon series going through the book of Ephesians. Two weeks ago, uh, Quincy walked us through a pretty theologically heavy uh, concept uh, that, that kind of kicks off the book, talking about predestination. It's kind of something that gets us on edge a little bit, but he, he revealed that it's not just that we are, you know, uh, uh, following the programming that we, you know, we're not robots following out what God is forcing us to do, do. It's that God has called us uh, from the beginning, that God has a plan for the world and that we as his followers are part of that plan. And that plan has been established from the beginning. So in a sense, we have been called from the beginning. We have been predestined to be a part of something. Last week, Claire Marie kind of dove more into that plan and our identity uh, within it. Uh, she reminded us that we are a vital part of the plan, that we were chosen to be people of hope, to be people of people, and to be people of power. Uh, She reminded us that we cannot decide what the plan needs to be, that we don't get to just reshape it in the image of our own comfort or our own desires or what we think is correct, that we have hope in Christ, in God, that he knows what is the plan, what the plan is. How can we have that same knowledge of the Almighty? And if we try to remake that plan, that's what we're trying to say. So today, I want to jump into Ephesians chapter 2 and kind of see what we can glean about both that plan and that identity that we've kind of jumped into a little bit in the, in the previous chapter. Uh, and I want to just dive right in. I want to dive right into chapter 2. We're going to start by reading the first section of the chapter. There's kind of three big sections that I want to get through and kind of talk about what they tell us about who we are. Uh, so let's, let's start in, uh, yeah, chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to go uh, through verse 10. Uh, so yeah, let's dive right in. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, all of us also lived among them at one time, Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not, not, uh, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's stop right there. Uh, It starts off with a transitionary phrase, if you heard it, as for you, which should tell us that whatever was said before is going to be important for whatever comes afterward. 
So, just a little recap of chapter 1 at the end. We don't need to put it up on the, on the screen or anything. Basically, what Paul does is just describe this glory and majesty and power that Christ Jesus has. That he was raised up. That he was given power over everything, is what the passage says. And so, when I see, as for you, I kind of feel like I'm standing next to my like, older sibling, you know, who, when our report cards came in. And my parents are, you know, oh, we're so, you talking to them, I, you've got straight A's, that's amazing, you've got all these college applications that have been accepted, you're going to graduate, top your class, we're so proud of you, you volunteer all your time, you're amazing, you've got all these friends, and as for you, it feels like this, like, oh, no, like this moment of, like, who am I, kind of like, I am, I am nothing. And honestly, that is kind of what Paul is saying here. That when we are compared to the majesty of Christ, that our actions, our nature is starkly different in contrast to, to who he was. That we, he gives this list of descriptions that is devastating. He says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. It's not a literal death, I would hope. I would hope you don't consider yourselves literally dead or that you were literally dead. And it's, it's a metaphysical death, that we were separated from the giver of life and so therefore are dead. He describes us as that we followed Satan. I mean, he uses the phrase, in the NIV at least, the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That has some significance we could get into. Not really the point right now. Take it to mean that we followed Satan with our actions, that we were pursuing uh, uh, our own selfishness. In fact, we gratified our sinful nature. That's another phrase that's used right there, that that was our desire, that whatever we wanted, whatever we were pursuing was sinful. And that's what we, that was our hope. That was what we wanted to accomplish. And we didn't even think about it as sinful at the time. That's just who we were. We didn't even know the problem. He also describes us as objects of wrath. Because of all this, we are objects of God's wrath. We ourselves were sinful and deserving of God's wrath because of it. But the goal isn't just to, you know, create this, this balance. It's actually to create or, or this, like, contrast. It then goes on. There is, a, there is a past tense in this section. Here's who you were. But because of that power and majesty and grace of Jesus, you are now this. You have now been raised up. You were dead and now have been made alive. Your identity is not the same. You have been shifted fundamentally from who you once were to who you are now. You are both literally and metaphysically alive because of Christ's grace. He describes this also as God's workmanship. Like that God is crafting something within us, that we have been created, which I think is a, a bit of a, a reference to what Paul was talking about before, that there is a plan, that we were, good works have been created for us to do at the end of this section, is a reference to what Paul was talking about when it comes to predestination, that from the beginning there is something for us to accomplish in the world at the behest of, Christ, at the behest of God. So he has this, this shift in identity that he starts to talk about uh, in, in this first section of the chapter. Um, here's, here's what makes this really easy for me as a, as a, as a, as a preacher. Uh, you can just insert your own name there and everything applies exactly the same. I don't have to like give you some like, well, yeah, sure, that was true, but in this context, no, 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 everything's exactly the same. You were dead. 
You might still be dead if you haven't accepted Christ. We'll talk about that. You were once dead. You're now alive. You were just just really going after your own sinful desires, your own nature, your own uh, just whatever you wanted. That was what took priority. But now you've been raised above that and seated next to Christ. You are now God's workmanship, craftsmanship. We get to just take, uh, take what, he, what Paul is talking about here in F- to, to the Ephesians in the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago, thousands and thousands of miles away, and say, yep, that's me. Check, check off all the boxes. That's me. So, cool. Really easy for me to just, yeah, cool. Just take that for your own selves. So let's move on, because I don't have much work to do there. Let's just move on to section two. Uh, we're going to jump right in again and, and just read through. Uh, uh, let's start back in verse 11. And we'll go through verse 18. Thank you. Uh, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, were, uh, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God, through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you those who were near. For through him, we both have access uh, to the Father by one spirit. Now, a lot of the words are different there, but honestly, he's kind of rephrasing what he said with a new context. You were this. You were foreigners. You were this, and now... You have been brought near. You have peace. You, have, you are now a part of the, of the kingdom of God. See, contextually in this, in this moment, he's speaking to people in Ephesus, a large portion of which are going to be Gentiles by nature, basically meaning they were not citizens of Israel. For a lot of history, uh, the overlap between the physical boundaries of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God on earth were essentially the same. Which meant that if you were not a citizen of Israel, not one of the descendants of Abraham in Israel, uh, then you were not included in the covenants that, that God made with that people. But what Paul is revealing here, and what we learned from Claire Marie last week, is that the plan from the very beginning, before even Israel was established, uh, uh, that the, there was a covenant made that would include all people on earth. And what we get to see here is that plan coming to fruition. The plan opening up to not just Israel, but the entire world. Uh, Paul, once again, is saying, you were this and are now something new, something different. That that which divided you from, from God, from his people, is torn down through the sacrifice of Jesus. See, Jesus' sacrifice... Uh, uh, was not only salvation for the individual, but it was reconciliation for the world. 
It did not just mean that each individual person on earth got to now have salvation. It also meant that everybody would come together as the one single kingdom of God. It wasn't separate areas that had different plans or different, different versions of salvation or different whatever it might be. It was that there was no, the physical boundaries that we have here on earth no longer mattered, including the cultural boundaries that those would create those no longer were relevant to being included in the people of God. And once again, hey, easy for me, that's true for us as well. I don't really have to give you a new context or explain why it makes sense for us too. You can read through that and say, hey, you're a Gentile. And at one point, that would have meant you didn't get to be a part of God's kingdom. But now it does because of Christ, uh, the work of Christ and the, the peace that he became. So good news. That just applies to us as well. So, because, again, I don't have to do much work to explain that, why it makes sense for us. Uh, let's move on um, to uh, the, the third section of this. Remember, let's do a little recap here. Uh, we have so far seen kind of two shifts, similar but, but distinct in certain ways, shifts in the identity of the audience, which we now know is also us. The shift in their kind of the, uh, their, their eternal identity, as going from, from dead to alive, and a shift in their earthly identity, as going from citizens of, you know, at this point for them, it would be citizens of Rome. Uh, uh, Ephesus had been ruled over by Rome for about 190 years, at the, or 180 years-ish at this point. And because of that, they had certain customs, they had certain things, certain, certain cultural boundaries. Uh, they shifted from simply a citizen of Rome to also included in the kingdom of God that that was also true for them. So let's read uh, this last section and see uh, what we learn about, uh, continue to learn about our identity here. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, yeah, thank you, uh, and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Uh, Chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Two weeks ago, Quincy kind of uh, told us, uh, gave us some great context about the city of Ephesus, including the fact that this is where the temple of Artemis was built. This was a, a place of worship where they would worship the deity, the Greek deity Artemis, also called Diana, because uh, there was like overlap between the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon. Uh, and it had been destroyed multiple times, even to, up, up to this point. Uh, but every single time it was destroyed, it was rebuilt bigger, more opulent, more expensive. It became this massive place to the point where when, when this letter was written, uh, it, the estimate is that it was about 450 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. This was a massive, massive building, especially for the day when building something was a little less, let's say, automated or, you know, not, not the same kind of level of machinery. It would take so much more effort to build something so massive, which would tell you about how they felt about Artemis, Right? If they're willing to put in all of this effort to build this massive temple and then build it up with, uh, with gold and silver pillars and these sculptures, they got prominent sculptors to, to decorate this place. 
This was a place of worship. This was a place that took special, uh, had a special place in the life of Ephesus. I, I, I don't think it's too much to say that it was part of their identity here. That they had some kind of uh, special relationship with Artemis in their, worship, uh, their life of worship. Which makes it pretty significant when Paul says, no, 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 you are the temple. There was a, 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 a practice done by kind of empires, especially Rome, called syncretism. Where essentially when they would take over a new area, and they would conquer a new nation or whatever... They would, instead of trying to force upon them, here's the religion you follow now, here's, here's how you have to dress, here's how you have to, you know, all these cultural things, they would say, hey, pay taxes, uh, you know, follow the, 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 the orders of the, you know, the legislation, the legislative, the, the, the government we put over you to a cert, certain extent, but they would try not to, try to, they would try to make that transition easier, to just allow the citizens of Ephesus or whatever nation uh, uh, or city or whatever to just simply continue their lives, and also be considered citizens of Rome and be ruled over them. And Paul is saying, no. No, no, no. See, if you are the temple, then going back to that other temple is ignoring what Jesus did. Your identity has now shifted. We are not simply adding a new place of worship to the lineup. You see, they, they worshipped Artemis, but they also probably went to other temples, to the various, you know, deities in the Greek pantheon. We're not just adding another one to the lineup, though, here. You are shifting in your identity to somebody who is solely worshipping God, and you yourself are part of that temple. This is a massive shift in the in identity of the people that this letter is being written to. That they don't get to uh, uh, continue as they once were, but now have to recognize what Christ has done in every facet of their lives. So, how does this, I mean, ultimately, this also applies to us, right? Once again, I don't have to really work here. I can simply say, you are also part of the church. You are part of the temple that is being built up. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, which means that the temple, as it once existed, is no longer what the temple should be considered. The temple of the Jew the, the, uh, in, in Jerusalem was destroyed about eight years after this was written and hasn't been rebuilt since in the same fashion. The identity of the temple has shifted to you. So what we need to ask is who are you? Who are we as people of the temple of the church in Portland, Oregon in the year 2023? Because you're probably saying that, sure, I don't worship other gods. You know, I don't go to the temple of Artemis. I don't think we have one of those. Uh, you know, we might. I, you know, I, it's a big city. I haven't been all around. There might be one around here. Uh, but I don't go do that. And you're also probably saying that there are parts of my identity that I don't think are, like, sinful. That I, I you know, I mean, myself, I mean, I identify as white. You probably can tell. I identify as cis male. I identify as heterosexual. I am 32 years old, which puts me squarely in the realm of millennial. Uh, I would say I, I identify as a, a cinephile, a, 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 a bibliophile. I'm a gamer. I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Uh, I, I, I am a feminist, an amateur philosopher, an amateur theologian. Uh, I am mostly an introvert. 
Uh, don't let the public speaking fool you. Please don't talk to me. Uh, uh, politically, uh, just a joke, by the way, just a joke. Politically, I am registered as an independent, but I absolutely lean to the left. Uh, I'm a citizen of the United States, also a political statement to a certain extent, but also just true by how, where I was born. Uh, I am a citizen of Oregon, more specifically, and even more specifically, I'm a resident of Wood Village. There are 100,000 things I could go on that we identify as that I don't think are a problem inherently. That when I tell you you are alive because of Christ, that you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you are the temple, you know, just because you like to read books and consider it a part of, you know, part of your personality, you know, those two things are, are not contradictory, right? You're probably, like, some of those things apply to you. Some of those things are the opposite, you know, of that list I gave you. Your view of me might have just changed by the way I just described myself. That's okay. We can discuss that if, if, if it's an issue. Uh, I think the problem comes in, the problem is when those things weaken the church that we have been made into. When, our, uh, when we either use our identity in Christ as a means towards something else, or when we decide that somebody else's identity in some whatever capacity is a barrier to them also falling under the gift of you know, God's grace and who he has made them to be. If our faith is simply a means of maybe political power, which seems to be on the rise right now, or our faith uh, becomes uh, you know, just a means, we use Jesus as an example of a social activist, and that's really what we're pursuing, then we have foregone that identity that, G- that, that God has given us for an identity that is more earthly, that is something lesser than, by nature of not being what we have for, uh, you know, been ordained to be. So how do we guard against becoming something that we were not meant to be? Well, first, I think it's to recognize that because you have different identity, you know, parts of your identity, they're not all, and you don't have to give up you know, certain parts of your life just because they are not Christian. They are not what you would define as a Christian. It's okay to have hobbies, to have friends, to have a political leaning. Those things are okay. Uh, but after that, I think the first step is to have that Mufasa moment. You know, in Lion King, that movie I, re- I watched... 25 years ago now, I don't even remember when. There's, I literally had to look it on, up on YouTube to make sure I was referencing the right thing. But there's a moment when Simba in The Lion King has this vision of his father, Mufasa, getting those names right, correct? Yes. Has this vision of, of Mufasa, and Mufasa, amongst other things, says, remember who you are. Simba had been on this other path, like retreating from his true identity, and then was reminded that this is who you truly are. I think we have to do that. I think that's what Paul is instructing the Ephesians to do, what, what he's instructing the Ephesians to do, and it's what we need to do on a regular basis, to be regularly in the word, to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Jesus, to be in community with other people who are like-minded and have that same identity, to be, remind ourselves that we are alive now. And if we go back to the thing that we once were, we are giving up, we are foregoing that which God has ordained us to be. Another step is deconstruction. 
It's a bit of a buzzword right now, although it's been happening literally since forever. Deconstruction, to put simply, is kind of taking something apart, examining what should be remain, and getting rid of what shouldn't. When it comes to your faith, we take what we believe, we, we, we examine it for truth, we examine it for holiness, we examine that it's correct, you know, orthodox theology, things like that. And if it's not those things, then we get rid of them in order to build back stronger. And in this context, we are doing that with our identity. If we are taking, we, we, we take a look in the mirror and recognize, you know, my faith, I, I, you know, I identify as a Christian, sure, I go to church, but here's what I truly find important. And it's something else. That if this is not how a church decides, you know, that this political faction or whatever is correct or right, then I'm not going to be a part of it. We have to be willing to winnow out those things, even if they are good, if they are weakening who we are. Because ultimately, this process, if we do it correctly, if we do it faithfully, if we do it with enough uh, self-conviction and humility, strengthens the church as the whole. There's a, a, a part in, uh, I believe it's Matthew, uh, where uh, Jesus is accused of, of, of casting out demons by the power of demons, and he uses this phrase that's become very popular, a house divided itself cannot stand. How could I cast, be, cast out demons if I am a demon? Well, if we as the church are divided and going in separate ways because we believe that our identity is useful for these different things and not for the plan of God that has been preordained from the start, then our house will not stand. This, this doesn't mean that we all need to do the same thing. We have different roles in the body of the church. It means that we have to collectively identify as dead and now alive. That we were once just looking after ourselves, our own selfish desires, and now we are looking after uh, more what the desires of God are, what his plan are, is. That we were once, you know, part of maybe Christianity or part of something, but we are now, we ourselves are the temple with Jesus as our cornerstone. So once again, the question is, who are you? We like to pretend uh, or, or like to say that we're mysterious or unique or you don't know who I am or you can't judge me or whatever, whatever phrasing we want to use. But honestly, I do know who you are if you have chosen uh, the, to follow Christ. I know that you were dead and I know that you are now alive. And I know that at one point this was, you, you, you were only looking after yourself and I know now that you can be raised up above that and be seated at the right, the right hand of God along with Jesus. And I know that at one point you were a foreigner to the, to the covenants of, of God, but now you are a citizen of his holy kingdom. So why waste that? Why, why weaken that with something you've decided is more important rather than pursue that plan that God has started from the very beginning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for calling us from the very start, for not allowing us to wonder who we are or what, what, are, what we are supposed to do with our lives. You've given us this direction from the start. You've given us this, this holy plan that we get to be a part of. I pray that we take that seriously, that we are willing to recognize the parts of who we are uh, that do not coincide or, or pursue the identity that you have given us.
Father, uh, help us to be a stronger temple, to recognize that your son, Jesus, is the cornerstone, and that we together, collectively, make up his dwelling place, the Spirit's dwelling place. In your name that we pray, amen.